In May 1471, after two brutal campaigns within a month, there was still no respite for Edward IV. Although he had killed Edward Prince of Wales and captured the elusive Queen Margaret, there was news of unrest elsewhere. In Yorkist England, elsewhere usually meant in the north, the southwest or Kent. Though Edward's victory had more or less pacified the southwest, he now faced new challenges in the north and in Kent, and he could not be in both places at once. Unwilling to leave the north to fester, he decided to head there first and set off for Coventry, where he aimed to raise more troops to bolster the army which had fought so hard and effectively for him, first at Barnet and then Tewkesbury. But by mid-May, the Earl of Northumberland reported that the North was at peace. Not that surprising, for by then news of the catastrophe at Tewkesbury would have reached any potential rebels in the North. Edward was still not very popular in the North, but the destruction of the Neville family's power meant that they were in no position to lead a revolt, and the restoration of Percy fortunes under Edward ensured the loyalty of Northumberland. The settlement of affairs in the north meant that Edward was free to head back south to deal personally with the uprising in Kent, which, because it threatened London itself, was a serious cause for concern. Now, you may wonder why, when the House of Lancaster appeared to be dead and buried, anyone would continue the struggle. I mean, what was there left to fight for? Well, firstly, it's important to know that the Kent Uprising started before the Tewkesbury campaign. Its leader is known to contemporaries and history as Thomas Bastard of Falkenberg. He was the illegitimate son, clue in the nickname, of William Neville, Lord Falkenberg, who had fought for Edward IV at Towton. Thomas was therefore a cousin of the Earl of Warwick, and he joined his cousin in exile in 1470. Like his cousin, he enjoyed naval command and liked to indulge in a little piracy from time to time. In such activities, he was employed when he returned with Warwick later in the year. As a result, he developed a close association with Kent and the men of the Channel ports. When Edward IV returned to England in the spring of 1471, Falkenberg went to Calais to bring back fresh troops for Warwick from the garrison there. However, he did not arrive in time to save Warwick. One imagines that this would have been a great blow to Thomas, since he had committed his future to an alliance with his cousin. So he decided to continue to support Queen Margaret, and by early May he amassed a sizeable force in Kent, perhaps as many as 10,000, though he claimed to have nearer to 15,000. His supporters, however, included few reliable soldiers, only really the contingent from the Calais garrison. Of the rest, they were ordinary working men for the most part, cloth workers, farmers and builders. So to return to my question, what was there left to fight for? Primarily, of course, there was the House of Lancaster. But as we often find in popular revolts of all periods, men took part because of local grievances as much as anything else. For example, some dairymen of Essex 
joined the rising as a protest about the low income they received from the London buyers of their goods. Others, no doubt, also joined in the hope of partaking of the rich pickings of London if the rebels were able to enter the city. Because the king was dealing with the crisis in the west, Folkenberg was able to make a considerable advance across Kent towards London unchecked by anyone. He wanted to get to Edward, but London stood in his way, so he asked the city authorities to allow his army to pass through London and promised that there would be no pillaging. For the city fathers, there were two issues to consider. Firstly, their loyalty to the king. A rebel army, once in the city, might attempt to free Henry VI, which would only fan the flames of rebellion. But more of an issue for the mayor and aldermen of London was that Kent rebels had serious form when it came to trashing the city, causing massive damage and loss of life. Many Londoners would have lived through the last such episode in 1450 during Jack Cade's rebellion, and it made sense to keep the rebel army outside the city. In declining Folkenberg's request, they also took the trouble to add that Edward IV had just annihilated the Lancastrian army at Tewkesbury. If they expected the news to disperse the rebel army, they were disappointed, for Folkenberg decided to press on and attack the city. Being a naval man, he brought his fleet up the Thames and moored it on the south bank close to the tower, where of course Henry VI was still lodged. At the same time, he launched an assault from Southwark onto London Bridge. Although some of the south gate to the bridge was damaged, Folkenberg could not cross the river. Perhaps he had hoped for some defections from within the city, but nothing materialised. On the 13th of May, Folkenberg stopped attacking the bridge and, changing tack, marched along the Thames to the west, claiming that having crossed the river at Kingston, he would head back along the north bank and sack Westminster before taking the city from the west. It probably would have been better not to tell everyone what he intended, because it gave Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, who commanded at the tower, the chance to send some of his men to Kingston by barge. However, before anyone had arrived at Kingston, Folkenberg decided to march back to Southwark again. So the whole day was spent marching to and fro along the river to very little purpose. Was Folkenberg just indecisive, or had wiser counsels prevailed? Crossing the river further west was a dangerous move for an army which had its origins in the southeast. Added to which, by then, everyone knew that Edward IV was on his way. Though Folkenberg wanted to fight Edward, better that it should be at a place more familiar to his own men. So, on the 14th of May, he reverted to Plan A, a full-scale attack on the city. It did not start well. Folkenberg positioned his guns on the south bank, and there was an artillery exchange which showed that the city's cannon had more firepower than the rebels. Though the rebels were forced to retreat from their guns, they continued with the attack. Their ships took several thousand men across the Thames to the east of the city, where they were joined by the men of Essex, and attacked both Bishopsgate and Aldgate. At the same time, there was another assault of London Bridge, which managed to cross part way and set fire to houses upon the bridge. 
but the bridge was heavily defended and they could not break through. At Bishopsgate, the gate was also damaged, but not breached. However, at Aldgate, the rebels came close to taking the gate and they were only frustrated by the intervention of Earl Rivers, who sent out several hundred soldiers from the tower to strike at the rebels from the rear. That, combined with a sally forth by the defenders at the gate, resulted in a rebel defeat. So, after much expenditure of effort and blood, Falkenberg's three-pronged attack had failed, and he retreated to Blackheath. Even so, he remained close to London until the advance guard of Edward's army appeared on the horizon. At that point, the rebels went home. Falkenberg's fleet of around 40 ships sailed back to the southeast ports, and the Calais garrison went back to Calais. By the time Edward arrived back in London on the 21st of May, the revolt was over, and the clearing-up process began, which included a few executions here and there. Falkenberg himself was pardoned, as we have seen, not an unusual act by Edward, but by September he had been executed. Possibly he had rattled a few cages and Edward had just had enough of him. Some other rebels were punished too, except for the Calais garrison, because as we know, no one went out of their way to annoy the Calais garrison. There remained then only one matter for Edward to decide upon. What was to be done with Henry VI? During the 1460s, there had been every reason to keep Henry alive, since killing him would have meant that his son, free in France, could have claimed the throne as king, not simply the heir. Now the son was dead, Henry once more became the focus of Lancastrian hopes. The problem would not go away until he died. The claim by a pro-Yorkist contemporary that Henry, having heard of the death of his son, died of pure displeasure and melancholy, seems a trifle unlikely, even by Henry's standard of emotional frailty. More likely is that Edward simply ordered his death. Politically, of course, it was the right decision, though morally it could never be. Henry VI died as he lived, as a mere symbol of kingship. The only other Lancastrian supporter making trouble was Jasper Tudor, who you may recall had left Queen Margaret to gather troops in Wales. Well, he did that, but he could not reach Tewkesbury to help her. And after a few minor successes, he returned to France in September 1471 with his nephew, a lad of no importance called Henry Tudor, Earl of Richmond. They never got to France and in fact washed up at the court of Duke Francis of Brittany, where they remained for many years more of that a lot later. The revival of Edward's fortunes was remarkable, but despite all his energy, charisma and military skill, it was only possible because when he first landed in 1471, his enemies were indecisive. Some of the blame can certainly be borne by Warwick himself, who seemed, when pitted against his protégé, to lack the drive that we are accustomed to seeing from him. But I think it is also reasonable to blame Margaret of Anjou for her endless hesitation in returning to England. I understand that she was reluctant to trust Warwick, but she gained nothing from delaying, especially once Edward had fled to Burgundy. From that moment on, 
the clock was ticking. Those were the months when she should have been in England, establishing herself and her son. Because she waited far too long, she failed. Can anyone imagine that even Edward could possibly have triumphed against Warwick and Lancaster? He could not. But in the end, he was gifted a situation in which he could pick off his enemies one by one. After 1471, there would be 12 years of peace, a peace which almost all contemporaries would have seen as an enduring one. Edward had two sons, a loyal brother working in harmony in the north with the Earl of Northumberland, and a stable government which embraced the vast majority of those who had once fought for Lancaster. What could possibly go wrong?